Well, good evening, everyone, and this is Rich Sparago, um, and you are listening to the 34th episode of the Metzian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, um, and tonight we have a very special guest, and I'll get to him in just a moment, but here we are. It's Sunday, the 18th of August, and the New York Mets are 64 and 60. Now, if you would have told me that a month and a half ago, I'd have been jumping up and down for joy. Um, but in a typical Mets fashion, there's a lot of stuff going on to get to that 64 and 60, and that's the stuff that we're going to talk about. First, let me bring on one of my co-conspirators on the podcast from the wonderful borough of Brooklyn, Mr. Mike LaCollin. Mike, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, my friend. Doing very well. Uh, glad to be speaking with you again. Same. And um, so for this 34th episode, we are thrilled to have a returning guest. We have tonight Newsday's Tim Healy. Uh, Tim, of course, covers the Mets for Newsday and is very active on Twitter and is a great source of information. So, Tim, if you'd like to tell folks you know, how you arrived on the Mets beat um, and, uh, and your, a little bit of your background, that would be fantastic. Welcome. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I, I've been on the Mets beat now for Newsday for about a year and a half, having jumped on during spring training in 2018, and it's been a, a heck of a, a heck of a year and a half, a very eventful year and a half. Uh, prior to that, I covered the Marlins for almost two years, and frankly, that was a an extremely eventful two years as well. Prior to that, lived in Boston, went to school in Boston, um, but happy to be in New York now and. Uh, Frankly, very excited to be covering a team that has been doing quite well. Uh, not so much the past week, but uh, overall, really impressed and right in the thick of things down the stretch here. Well, let's start there, and that's a great segue to where I wanted to go. So, in typical Mets fashion, they're in this thing, but then you have to ask yeah. the question, are they in it, right? Because right. if the Cubs lose, and I'm watching the game as we speak, if the Cubs should lose tonight, the Mets will be one game, one skinny game out of a wild card. But but let's talk about how they got there. The, the Mets really seem to not be able to hold their own against good teams, but they seem to find a way to you know to pummel the bad teams. Evidenced by the teams they played before the All-Star break, they did not do well. They did not do well against the Phillies. They did not do well against the Cubs. Um, they did not do well against the Dodgers going back a little farther, back to late May. But when the All-Star break came and went and the Mets played teams like Minnesota and Miami, they really uh, – and Minnesota's a good team. I, you know, I, I give that in context. But um, when they would play the White Sox in Miami and, and, um, and teams like that, they would just absolutely run the table, and they did 15 out of 16 against them. So the Mets are mathematically as alive as anyone. But, Tim, my question for you is, give me your opinion. Are the Mets legitimately competing for a second wild card, or do you think that the cupcake schedule will catch up to them and they'll fall out of it? And I'll say this before I segue to you. Um, the writers on Twitter are all over the place on this one, or there's one in particular who um, insists <laughs> the Mets are a complete mirage. You know, It's like seeing the desert, right. you know, seeing the, the fountain in the desert, right? But, Tim, what are your thoughts? What are the Mets, and are they in this thing or not? Well, there are two sides of it, and you touched on them. I First, you know, you have to give the Mets their due. They were a bad team for half of the season, and now I, I'm a big believer in you are what your record says you are, you know, the, the, old, the old saying. Uh, they were bad for half the season, and then they dominated for pretty much a month coming out of the All-Star break. So now, yes, the Mets 
absolutely mathematically are contenders. Their uh, their fate is in their own hands. If they can finish strong the last month and a half, then they're going to go to the playoffs. Uh, that said, yes, the soft schedule did help. I have n- they still have a lot to prove in terms of doing it against good teams. We've seen them against the Nationals, the Braves, uh, the Kansas, Kansas City this weekend. They managed to take that series. Uh, but they still have a lot to prove there. I am not convinced that this team will go to the playoffs. But having watched what I've watched for the past month and change, I, I never would have expected them to win 14 out of 15 or 15 out of 16 or wherever that stretch ended. So I'm open-minded. I'm willing to be surprised. But I'm still sort of in prove-it mode. Uh, they haven't proven to me yet that they are going to be a playoff team. Um, but, you know, that's, that's why they play the games. Uh, they've, they've already done quite a bit that I never would have guessed they would have done. Well said. Mike, before you take it, let, let me throw this at you. The Mets are 24-10 and 10 since the All-Star break. That's really good, right? Um, the Mets play very well at home. And I find this kind of shocking that if I did the math correctly a little bit ago, 25 of the Mets' last 38 games are at City Field. That's a ridiculous preponderance of home games at any time. 25 and 13 with 25 of them at home. Mets play very well at home. But of all the National League wild card contenders, the Mets have the toughest schedule when you look at the winning percentages of their opponents. So, Mike, it's like, a, it's like Libra. It's like a balance, right? Where are you on this? Some good things point to, like, the home games. Maybe they could do this. Strength of schedule says they can't. Mike, where are you? You mentioned that 24-10 and 10 record since the break. They went into that break losing two or three to the Philadelphia Phillies over the 4th of July weekend. And that's where we have to turn our attention, to the Phillies and to the Braves as this season winds down. We're 5-8 and eight against the Braves. We're 4-9 and nine against the Phillies. We have six games remaining with both. Uh, and as you say, Rich, there's 38 games left in the season. 25 or 26 of them will be at home. Advantage Mets, but they have to step up and they have to seize the moment. The numbers are in their favor. You know, they're 64 and 60 as we speak. How they got here, in hindsight, is irrelevant. What if I said to you, you know, they had superlative May and June and fell off the cliff in July and August, or vice versa? It doesn't matter. We're here now. Now, we won two or three versus Washington, we lost two or three versus Atlanta. We won two of three versus KC. And today's victory in particular probably does a lot to sway opinions before the weekend is through. To answer your question, Rich, directly, I don't know. It all depends on what they do against Atlanta and what they do against Philly. That's my answer. It's right, though. It's absolutely accurate. That will make the difference. And I think my – our third contributor to the Metzian podcast, Mr. Sam Maxwell, has joined us. So, Sam, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. I'm in Madison, New Jersey, as always, on location. Uh, so, you know, enjoying uh, riding around with Lyft, enjoy listening to the Mets today. And, uh, Tim, thanks for joining us tonight. Anytime. Thank you for having me. So, Sam. Why don't you? I'm going to put you right in the hot seat, right? So, are the Mets 
Are they pretenders? Are they contenders? Can they do this? Where do you see it? So to go along with kind of the theme that there's there's still in proven mode, I think that I'm still in specifically with Mickey Calloway. He needs to prove that he can win these big games because they've they he, he we know that he can set a stretch off like he did to start his managerial career, like he just did with 15 out of 16. It, they can they can knock this crazy stretch out, but then you know specifically with this current stretch that put them into the conversation. And I'm not sure whether there's any way to quantify this, and I'm curious to see what you guys think. But I feel like he makes, you know, riskier choices on the road, which may lend itself to why the road record is what it is. Because they shouldn't be this much worse of a team. And I'd have to, you'd really have to go dissect the numbers. I know it's obviously the, a player's game, really, and we can probably see a big difference between uh, uh, what the players are doing at home versus on the road, such as J.D. Davis, who's just killing it. Uh, uh, in City Field, but is a little bit lackluster on the road. Although he got some big hits this week, um, I'm I'm curious to see whether there's any way to quantify the type of moves that he makes. Because I feel like looking at this way this week, where he took Steven Matz out at 79 pitches, and he took Marcus Stroman out at 89 pitches, both of which uh, Stroman had just given up, I believe, a hit or or even a home run at the time. Um, I feel like Stroman could have finished. Steven Matz could have definitely had another inning, and they both affected the way the bullpen was uh, set forth. So I'll throw it back to you, Rich, uh, regarding that, whether you guys see any way to quantify that. I don't, personally. But but let's talk about that, because that was a big thing. And, and Tim, I'll go to you on this, and we'll get a quick reaction to something Sam just mentioned. In the game that Steven Matz pitched, the Mets – they let him bat for himself in the top of the seventh with two outs, nobody on. The Mets end up, he starts a rally. Matt's a great athlete, very good hitter. Start a rally, take a two-to-one lead, and then they take him out for Lugo. Uh, Matt's, as Sam said, 79 pitches, had been mowing the Braves down. I was, I was a bit confused by that move for the following reason. If you're going to let him hit, what you're saying is, okay, Assuming the game stays one nothing Atlanta, we need you to keep it close. We need you cannot let anything score here. You know, we need you to go out there and, and throw up a zero in the bottom of the seventh. Why is that mentality any different when it's two to one Mets? Why? Because Matt still has to do the same thing. He has to go up there and throw up that zero. I was if you're going to let him bat, let him pitch. Because you were gonna let him pitch under one circumstance and you take him out and don't let him pitch under the other, which to me, I understand a one-run lead versus down one. Yes, there's a difference. I think that difference is marginal. Tim, where do you see that? Uh, I thought it was a curious sequence and a curious decision from Callaway. In fact, of, of all of his you know, moves that have been questioned this year and last year, this is the one that struck me as oddest, I think. Um, here you have a guy who was cruising a bullpen that is, you know, let's say not trustworthy beyond Seth Lugo. Um, why is the ask different, you know, in terms of posting a zero in the seventh tied versus behind by one versus up by one? You know, I guess it, once they take the lead, they decide to be more aggressive and just sort of go for the kill, so to speak. Um, but I, I didn't 
agree with that. Uh, I thought it was a strange move, especially when you still have to figure out the nine. The funniest quote to me from Callaway in discussing that afterward was, you know, well, if, if Lugo posts, you know, two zeros, then we win the game. And that's just factually inaccurate because you have no <laughs> idea who's going to pitch the ninth or if they're going to be able to get through the ninth. It sounded like it was going to be some combination of Edwin Diaz and Justin Wilson, but who the heck knows how that would have gone down. Now, granted, you know, Seth Lugo got battered to death, and it was, you know, an unfortunate inning for him. I frankly didn't wasn't able to put blame on Lugo at all, especially considering that he wasn't totally warmed up. But, you know, it, it was a weird decision, and it backfired, and sometimes that happens. So, was, you know, and we just tend to we, – we definitely tend to remember the super ugly ones, and this goes down absolutely as a super ugly one. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Mike, where were you on Matt's gate? Oh, well, in, in that instance in particular, I, I was not in favor of that move, not not, not one bit. Uh, players run bases, after all, and, and pitchers pitch. And, you know, at, at least in, in this league, they pitch that and run bases. So, again, that's one of those situations where you ask a manager a question, he's forced to say something. Uh, some of those things I take with a grain of salt, but the decision in and of itself I didn't agree with. Uh, but to answer Sam's point directly, you know, uh, we, we, well, we, I should say the people who are, are wholly against analytics and whatnot and, and, and cry for a little bit of old school to be injected back into the game, well, there's a thing, uh, they, they say, you know, play to win on the road and play to tie at home. So, Sam, uh, you know, being that, that that's an old school axiom, uh, I have no problem with uh Callaway being somewhat more aggressive on the road if in, if in fact that's the case. Sam, anything else on that one, or do you want to move on? I know you brought it up. Did you have an additional comment on that? The only thing I would say is that if it, it is the case, and again, I don't I don't know where I'd start to do the research, maybe he's more worried at home that the, the fans are going to really hammer him and so he's just he's like, all right, let me let me see what I can get away with on the road, uh, because a lot of, a lot of these moves end up being ponderous, you know. Yeah, no, they do. And isn't it ironic though that the Mets couldn't win at home for several, you know, a few years ago? They for a couple years in a row, they just could not win on. They certainly couldn't beat Washington at home. And now they're this amazing home team that can't win on the road. But all right, so so moving on to my favorite topic of the night. I cannot wait to get to this because I have a lot of thoughts on this one. Uh, so, Tim, I'm going to start with you again. You're closest to this team, and I, and I don't want to come off snarky, but I, I, I think it might. Can you tell me why? Let's start this. Can you tell me why Tejada and Guillorme are on the roster at the same time? I want to start there, but I'm going to have a couple of follow-up questions. So why are they on the roster at the same time? What am I missing? Uh, well, I think if you look at Syracuse right now, the Mets organizational depth is basically shot at this point in the season, and they it, they have other options. I don't think they are clear, necessarily clear-cut better options. Wilson Herrera continues to mash for Syracuse. Rajay Davis is there and healthy again, and he's been fine. Um, but the reality is that Tejada, Herrera, Davis, Luis Guillorme, who's been up and down, None of these players are clear-cut major league players. So you can swap them out all you want. Um, I think in the way things stand right now in particular, having another outfielder might be helpful. 
Um, but ultimately, I don't think it makes that much of a difference. Nobody is significantly better than anybody else of that group. Um, and if there was somebody who was definitely going to be better, then they'd probably be in the majors already. Yeah, okay, oh, fair. But but how about this? So the Mets have Danny Espinosa. He's a switch hitter with pop. Now I know he's he's not his batting average isn't great. I have it right in front of me, but I know he's not tearing it up batting average wise. But when I looked, I said to myself, he must be hurt because you have to give this guy a shot. He he he's versatile switch hitter, pop. No, he's not hurt. He's been playing right along. So I can't understand why they don't go to him. I don't understand why they don't go to Dilson Herrera. Somebody who can differentiate. You know, Tejada and Guillorme, neither one has any power, neither one has any speed. They they do the same thing. And today, and this is where I'll go to my colleagues, Tim, if you don't mind, you go first on this one. Today, it bit them in the butt. Today, they needed an outfielder. Now, granted, it was a blowout, and we all got a good laugh when Rosario got his one fly ball. That's fine. But what if? (laughs) What if they're playing the Braves in Atlanta and it's a one-run game in the bottom of the ninth? I would bet my mortgage that they, they would lose the game on a fly ball to left field because the roster is poorly constructed. They don't have enough outfielders. So, Tim, I don't know. What, do you, what did you think about today? Did you, let, me ask you, let me ask it this way. Do you think today would be the impetus for them to look at the roster and say, holy cow, we've got to do a couple of things here because we got lucky today? What do you think? I think it could be depending on what the actual deal is with J.D. Davis's tight right calf. Uh, J.D. Davis has said he's fine. Mickey Calloway has downplayed it, said he's just being cautious. But as the Mets decide here over the course of the off-day Monday, going into the game Tuesday in a big series against the Indians, um, if, if that's an actual issue and they're going to be down to literally just three outfielders and have to put Ahmed Rosario out there if anybody goes down, then, yeah, they'd probably make a change there. If J.D. Davis is fine, then I don't really see the need necessarily to balance it out infield versus outfield. Granted, if you wanted to take one of the relievers and send them back down for a position player, that's not a bad idea. Um, but as, as far as Danny Espinosa, I, I get it. But if you look at if you look at it on merit, you have Tejada tearing it up, Espinosa less so, and Dilson Herrera really also having a good season, and also playing some corner outfield, mind you. I thought, to me, when they were making the Ruben Tejada decision this week, uh, a point in Dilson Herrera's favor would have been his added versatility um, playing the corner outfield spot, starting to learn those positions. Um, but Espinosa just doesn't really do anything for me. I know he's a switch hitter. Uh, he's got plenty of big league experience. He's been in pennant races with the Nationals. Um, but in the inflated offensive environment of the International League this year, He's having a good year, but not a great year. I don't think he necessarily deserved it or uh, would be better than Tejada or Herrera if the Mets went that way. I, I would have gone to Herrera myself for the reason you, are, you just articulated. He can play the outfield, and today, of course, they needed it. So, Mike, let's go to you on that one. I don't know. Personally, when I saw Rosario in the outfield, I'm, I'm shaking my head. I'm like, this damn roster isn't made right. Why is this happening? Some people might have thought it was amusing. I don't know. What are you thinking when you watch Rosario have to be pressed into service? And, by the way, if you saw the post-game interviews, he said he'd never played left field in, at, in any level. He played a little bit of center, right? So, I mean, come on. This is a head pounder. Mike, what do you think of this one? That's just great, isn't it? To your previous point, that time is coming soon. They got Cleveland, Cleveland coming up, as Tim said, and then we have Atlanta. 
you know, going into that Atlanta series, no, I, I don't want a roster of 12 position players and 13 pitchers. I think they need to make an adjustment before that series. Uh, you know, Rosario is our fourth. No, that that that's not sustainable. That's not smart baseball. Not this time of year. Not when, you know, you're chasing down a wild card. Not when you're in contention. Uh, not if you want to be taken seriously. So they really need to rethink this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, to, to Tim's point, yeah, nobody at Syracuse is really distinguishing themselves, unfortunately. I would have gone with Pereira as well, but you really can't argue with uh, the choice of Tejada. He was playing well. The numbers sustained his promotion, uh, but I would have went with Pereira. Uh, his numbers uh, speak for themselves. Uh, so it, it is what it is. You know, we're shuffling the same players in and out of the Syracuse merry-go-round. So uh, uh, unless we bring in absolute fresh faces, uh, this is the discussion we'll continue to have. Uh, I just want a little bit more sustainability uh, and a little bit more sensibility with this outfield situation, Rich. Oh, amen, amen. Sam, where are you on it? Do, do you think uh, today was a was like a speeding ticket, you know, slow down and and – before you really kill yourself, Mets, or what? What do you think? <laughs> I think this is the stuff that miracles are made of, you guys. <laughs> I just, I think, like, that's the only way it goes, right? It's just like we're staring at it, and, and you say to yourself, this doesn't make any sense, and yet they end up pulling it off. Um, no, I think they definitely need to adjust the roster. I mean, you said, like, if you need to be taken seriously. Uh, I think, you know, just to echo the whole Herrera thing, I think that would have made a ton of sense over Tejada. Um, obviously, Tejada's had very little uh, 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 success off at the big leagues. Some, very some. I know you're cringing right now, Rich. But uh, I, I think that I, the point that I want to hammer, hammer home, and then I guess let's loop back to Tim because maybe he has a, a better answer than I can come up with. Why Rajai Davis is not here instead of Aaron Altair? Is it the youth thing? Because I, I just I understand that maybe Rajai is not capable at age 38 to make the type of plays in the outfield that Altair can, but he's going to give you substantially more, if not a crazy amount. But he's definitely going to be hitting better than .05 or whatever Altair is hitting right now. Is, is it just that they're going with the youth thing? Because it doesn't make any sense that Altair's on this roster. Before Tim jumps on that, Tim, I'm going to go to you next. I'm going to add two more questions because that, that's on my list here. All right, so the questions are, why not Rajai Davis? I know he's been hurt, but he's, he's been back playing for about 10 days-ish now. Why not Rajai Davis, who has stretch run experience? Altair, someone has to tell me what they see in this guy. So why not Rajai Davis? And do you think maybe Rajai Davis soon? And then I have two more questions for you, Tim, and, of course, Tim and Mike as well. Um, Josh Harrison is out there, available. Harrison can play the infield. He can play the corner outfield position. Do the Mets see any way that maybe he might be able to help the roster? Also, Billy Hamilton will be available. With the Mets' dearth of outfielders, and I recognize Billy Hamilton's about a greatly about a 230 hitter. I understand that, but he still can go get him in the outfield. So, do you see the Mets maybe looking outside the organization at this point, where they can't make any trades, but a player like Hamilton, player like Josh Harrison, that they're available, and maybe they might look outside the organization. So, Tim, if you don't mind, please. Sure. Well. 
attack those backwards. Uh, as far as Harrison and Hamilton go, then yes, I, I you know, whenever uh, this is sort of a brave new world of August free agency in baseball with the different trade deadline rules, but with all these players being DFA'd and suddenly available, like Joe Panic, like Brad Brock, uh, the Mets are going to look at every single one of them. Uh, Billy Hamilton in particular strikes me as a potential upgrade over Aaron Altair, who, frankly, I, I, the poor guy, I can't tell you what they've seen him. I know it's been a real rough go. He's basically uh, barely played for each of the three teams he's been on, uh, so it, it's hard to get in a groove when you're in that situation, but you're right. He doesn't really bring much of anything to the table. Um, with, with, as far as Josh Harrison goes, yes, he's versatile. Billy Hamilton is very good in center and very fast on the bases. Um, to me, Hamilton is more appealing for those reasons, but they both sort of just round back to the earlier point that none of these guys are very good. They are free agents or available in August for a reason. Um, so of those two, Hamilton seems like the better fit for me over Altair. Um, or he, he would supplant Altair should the Mets uh, try to bring him on board. Um, and then what, what was the question before that? I just want to make sure I hit all those points. Uh, I think you hit him. It was oh, Rajai. If, if you can touch on Rajai, uh, why he hasn't uh, been up yet. Well, it, th- there are two parts to it. One, I'm not convinced. Oh, the, the Mets don't think he's a clear-cut better option than Altair, which really says something. But two, when they were making – these most recent roster moves on Wednesday in Atlanta, uh, you alluded to, or you referenced it, Rajay Davis had just come back from his own hamstring injury. Now that he's going to be an extra week removed from that, heading into Tuesday's game, almost a full extra week, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they do make a change there. Um, and, yes, these are all moves around the margins. Um, but Brody Van Wagenen has spoken to this idea in the past that if you can get a little bit better here and a little bit better there, then on the whole, it might make a meaningful difference. Um, now, t- today was an interesting example when you have to put Rosario in left field. It's, you'd rather not have to do that. Um, but it, is Davis an upgrade over Altair? Probably a little bit, sure. Um, is Billy Hamilton an upgrade over Altair? I'd say more decidedly yes, even though he's going to get uh, next to no offense from him. So uh, these are all decisions the Mets were going to have to more explicitly make in the coming days. Um, and I'm interested to keep an eye on Hamilton in particular. That warms my heart to hear that because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, and Mike, as I segue to you and Sam, do you ever get the feeling that the Mets are playing shorthanded? It's like, you know, first of all, J.D. Davis, he can maybe hit, but he can't run. Maybe he should be on the I.L., who knows. Guillaume, Tejada, some of these guys in the bullpen, it's like, I know every team has their issues, but my God, sometimes it seems like the Mets are playing with 20 guys. So what would you do, Mike? Um, would you think about Rajai Davis, think about looking outside the organization? What are your thoughts on all there, all that? Seems like they do that a lot, or at least that's the impression uh, we, we, we seem to have, Rich. You know what? Allow me to play contrarian. If the choice boils down to Billy Hamilton or sticking with Juan Ligaris, Rich, I'm going to stick with Juan Ligaris. And, you know, perhaps, I mean, it's it's the way the roster is composed. They either have an extra pitcher or they expand the bench. You know, so I'm not sure what Billy Hamilton can add to this team other than 
other than defense, but, you know, he just doesn't get on base enough to utilize to maximize his speed or potential speed. Uh, that's my drawback. So I, I just, I'll stick with Ligaris and, and hope to add some some other way. I, I, right, I'm a little... Go I'm, ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. I was going to say, not as opposed, not to supplant Ligaris, but it, you have the Aaron Althair position, the fourth outfielder, right? I guess what I'm asking you is, would you prefer Rajai Davis, Aaron Althair, uh, Billy Hamilton, or perhaps Josh Harrison, who, although an infielder by trade, can play the outfield? That that's It's the fourth and fifth outfielder. I, I think my confusion is the answer. You know, to me, they're all the same, Rich. I, I don't know which way to go on that because they're all the same to me. You know, uh, you're asked to paint a rainbow and you're given a box of 64 crayons. Which ones do you use if you don't know what the right combination is? I don't you know. kind of like that. All <laughs> right. I like that analogy. All right, Sam, where are you on? And I know you're not a big Aaron Altair fan. What would you do here? I'm like, I'm blowing up Twitter about how much I don't like Altair. Although, as I pointed out today, I fi- finally uh, spelled his name right consistently. Um, <clears throat> just in time for me to want to boot him off this team. So, I think the thing about Rajai Davis is he just seems to have a knack for the dramatic. I mean, you know, obviously he was DFA'd pretty soon thereafter, but he, he he got, you know, a big home run in his first at bat. It was kind of like, it, it almost like looking back on it, it reminded me of when Yoana Cespedes uh, pinch hit. We were all worried that he was injured, and, and he finished, uh, uh, I think it was maybe even uh, – uh, forget about the details right now. I, I, I'm, I'm, like, going back and forth as to what – that specifically was, but it was a dramatic, I think, uh, game tie tie-breaking home run at the time, um, and it, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit with the Rajai Davis home run. But he, yeah, he seems to have a knack for the dramatic, and I think he would just provide uh, that that championship pedigree that we got in Juan Uribe down the stretch in 2015. Um, I think, Rich, one of the reasons why I could see you loving Billy Hamilton was the same reason you loved Eric Young Jr. Uh, and you know, I think that right now Altair is so boring, but Billy Hamilton would bring a little bit more excitement with the way he can go after it in the outfield and the way he can run the bases. Uh, so that's like like to play contrarian to what Mike said, that's how I think they're not all the same, even if they're not going to give you much in offense. Well, it kind of reminds you of a Twitter conversation I had with a guy on, on Friday where he was saying that, Billy Hamilton's a 1.5 tool player out of the five tools. You know, why, why do we want that guy? I said, well, isn't it a bit heavy-handed to say that 1.5 tool players are bad when you have zero tool players on the roster, like all there, <laughs> Billy Orme and Tejada? I mean, isn't that a little strange? Um, anyway, so uh, let's. Uh, well, I guess we can move off the roster at this point, and certainly hope that um, what Tim says, or at least in my opinion, comes to fruition that they'll look at Hamilton because to me. He could go get him in the outfield. He could run. Maybe he could bunt for a base hit. And I think I've named three things that Althair can't do. Although, in fairness, Althair did uh, did make a couple of nice plays in Kansas City. And, and Tim, I know you were there. The Braves organist, you know, he's obviously, obviously legendary. And the sure. fact that he played Here Comes the Bride when Altair came up, how funny is that? <laughs> that, was, that was a very good one. It was, it, it, uh, like you said, the Braves organist is uh, well known for his uh, – Great song choices, and that that was an old timer for him. That 
I was laughing so hard. And then I'm like, why aren't these guys saying it? But then finally Gary Apple said, oh, and, oh no, Ronnie said it. Ronnie said if you heard in the background, <laughs> they play Here Comes the Pride. That is so funny. All right, let's move on. Um, and, Tim, we'll, go, we'll kick, you, kick off with you again. That seems to be working well. Marcus Stroman. Uh, Mets picked him up at the trade deadline just before that. You know, everybody raised their eyebrows. Okay, fine. He's here now. And the truth is, he hasn't pitched really well. He's won the games he started, but he hasn't pitched well. Um, now, Stroman says, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, my best is still coming. I like hearing that. He's wonderful. I love seeing him on the top step of the dugout. He's a cheerleader. He's all those things. But at the end of the day, really hasn't pitched all that well. So, so what do you think, Tim? Do you think it, it could be a league adjustment, or do you think maybe – He's not as good as we thought he was, and that's why Toronto traded him. Where, where are you on that? Uh, I think it's a little bit of all of those things. When you do, when you switch, when you spend your entire career in the American League, and then you switch to the National League, sure, yeah, there, there's going to be some adjustments there, just in terms of learning the hitters, because you don't have a lot of history with most of them. But also, he was pitching to a sub three ERA with Toronto, and he had never done that before. So, is he as good as a sub three ERA consistently? Ah! Probably not. You know, he's probably not quite that good. He wasn't all-star this year. So if there's some natural aggression, that makes sense. Um, but also, uh, it's just three starts, so I'm not too worried about him underperforming. He can pr- In this rotation, he only needs to be, at most, a number three starter, really. Um, and then the other thing worth mentioning is he's been paired with Wilson Ramos, who is bad at framing generally, but bad at framing especially pitches low in the zone. And Marcus Stroman, with his sinker or two-steamer or whatever you want to call it, lives down in the zone. And there have been a handful of pitches in each of his starts so far that were in the strike zone, you know, the, what, you know, the electronic version of the strike zone, but were not called strikes. And there, there were two egregious examples against the Braves when, yes, Marcus Stroman missed his spot, so Wilson Ramos had to dramatically move his glove. Um, but it was two real bad frame jobs on pitches that were decidedly strikes or should have been strikes. Um, so that, that is, that's a factor, too. I'd be really curious to see uh, how Stroman would fare with Tomas Nito. Um, I thought, you know, we, we might see that this week uh, when Stroman pitches Wednesday. Um, uh, actually, you know what? Thursday's not even a day game, so scratch that. I bet Ramos catches the entire Cleveland series. Um, but – it, again, to get back to Stroman, it, it, it is all of those things. Um, he has been underwhelming, yes, uh, but I, I expect him to be better, and I think the the Mets very reasonably expect him to be better too, and I, I think that will come in time. Certainly hope so. So, Sam, we'll go to you next on that one. What are your initial impressions of Stroman, and um, do you think you know that, that it's only been four starts, no problem, or do you have any concerns? I think the last game was his best game, and this is the one that I thought he should have finished the inning, uh, which I believe was the uh, – he was at 89 pitches, and I think he was in the seventh inning, but I'm, I can't be too sure. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, but I, I think the, the most impressive thing I, – I do appreciate that he's such a cheerleader, uh, but he just – every game he seems to make a remarkably athletic play for a pitcher. And uh, – Considering, like I said, he, he does seem to be settling in. I thought he should have gone at least two more outs. Um, and 
I think I think he's going to be fine. I like the guy. I'm glad that we have him for one more year. Mike Stroman is an eminently likable person. Although you know, we three of us don't know him, but certainly seems that way. Um, what are your thoughts on Stroman? Are, are you okay with it? Is any little part of you saying, did we give up too much for this guy? Where are you on it? No, I'm totally copacetic with the situation. Uh, I'm playing it straight. I'm not going to turn my back on him now. I'm, I'd rather tough it out with Stroman uh, than to have continued forward with Jason Vargas. Very simple. He, he uh, coughed up the lead the other night for the Phillies. I think it was last night. Um, um, <laughs> he, he did. <laughs> Um, so, all right, so moving on to Pete Alonzo. Let's talk about Pete because it's a very special day for Pete. 40 home runs. He is now the all-time leader for a rookie with home runs in the National League, which is – that is a hell of an achievement, men. You know, when you think about how long the National League has been around, Pete Alonzo now holds the record for most home runs as a rookie. Fantastic. We were all concerned. He was under the Mendoza line after the uh, the All-Star break. But he certainly rebounded. You know, the five-hit game in Atlanta. He had the game-winning, which I give him a lot of credit for the game-winning single last night because he had just missed a grand slam. But you know, Tim, for those of us who are watching on TV, you could not see the baseball. So I still have no idea if it was fair or foul, as they called it foul. Same. But <laughs> was it foul to you being there? Uh, I couldn't even see it when it landed because it's sort of a, a weird corner and the lighting wasn't great. Or you know maybe too bright. I, I so I didn't see live where it landed, and then I tried to watch the replays like everybody else, and it seemed like we didn't really get any. <laughs> no, I know it, it. From where it landed, I'm saying to myself, how could that have been foul, but landed there? But you couldn't really tell. But anyway, Pete, 40 home runs. He certainly is has seems to have come out of his slump. And so I guess the first thing I want to say is how lucky are the New York Mets to have this guy, uh, he, uh, both Pete and McNeil. But secondly, what about the fact that this young man, Tim, we'll start with you, is uh, is able to carry this team at his age? I mean, a, a rookie at 24 years old carrying the team. And just out of curiosity, where do you think he'll end up home run-wise? Just give me a number. Uh, mm, he's at 40 with a little less than a quarter season to go. I'll, I'll say 50. I think he won't quite reach Judge, although that would be – a heck of a finish for him, but 50 seems like a nice number, right? <laughs> uh, but as, as, far, as far as him and his season and carrying the team, you're right on all of those things. It's hard to uh, do justice with words, what he's meant to the Mets and how impressive he's been. Um, and that's been true on the field and off the field from the start of spring training. From you know, I, I can remember one of the early days of spring, uh, the games hadn't started yet. And it was very much a first-base competition with, don't forget, Alonzo, Dom Smith, Todd Frazier, and J.D. Davis were mentioned in that mix. Um, so his, his near-term future was very much up in the air. And uh, one day everybody else is eating lunch and showering and leaving, and he's out there on a, on a backfield with Gary DiSartina and Tim Tuffle taking extra grounders at first. So he, he's been very impressive um, from from the get-go this year, and obviously, I mean, 40 home runs on on August 18th is just comical. Um, to pass Cody Ballinger for the NL record, uh, he's one away from Todd Hundley and Carlos Beltran for the single-season franchise record. Um, it, it's been, really been something else to watch. Yes, he did slump coming out of the second half there, but the Mets believe, and frankly, it's pretty easy to agree with them, that just based on the work he puts in and the 
quality and kind of hitter he is, that that slump wasn't going to last too, too long. Um, just in terms of he's not a mere slugger. He's more well-rounded with that, as we saw last night with the foul grand slam and then the two-run single back up the middle. Um, so he, he's, he's more than just a pure home run hitter, even though the home runs are most fun to watch. He, and that, that's the most impressive part, is he gets hits to right field like he did today. I mean, that thing almost went out. Um, he does yeah. hit the ball over the field, right? That thing, that thing was five feet from a home run. It hit, you know, in the middle of the wall, right? I hit the, the, the stripe. Um, yeah, another, another weird play in the corner. <laughs> right, right. Another weird play. That's exactly right. So, um, no, and, and how lucky are the Mets to have a core of, of Pete Alonzo and Jeff McNeil? I mean, it really – you look at the National League East going forward, the Braves, of course, are downright scary with what they have. But, you know, the Mets do have a couple of young guys to build around, and, and not only on the mound. They do have a couple of position players to build around that should be around for a long time. So – so, Sam, let's go to you next on Pete. And Tim made a point that I didn't make, and thanks for making it, that Pete Alonso will be the Mets' all-time single-season home run leader. I mean, that, that's going to happen. It might happen before the, the end of this week. So how about that being the all-time National League rookie, home run leader, all of those things, and just being Pete Alonso, the way he conducts himself? What are your thoughts? I think it would be nice to not only make the playoffs, but also break the judge record. Uh, that, that would be, you know, just for the fact that he's a Yankee, uh, it would be a nice little cherry on top if we were to make the playoffs. Uh, otherwise, you know, it'll still be lovely, but I'd love to also have the playoffs to, uh, to go into the off season with, uh, with the, uh, you know, against the, in the, in the nice city rivalry. Looking at his numbers, I'm I'm more happy that he started getting that bat, uh, that batting average back up. You know, he's hitting 271. He kind of bottomed out after hitting 283 before the All Star game. He kind of bottomed out at like 258, but he didn't really let it go any lower. I think than 256, uh, and then just started climbing again. He's been collecting these hits. Uh, he got another three hits today, two RBIs. And I think a good segue off of this is looking at it, what what a 3-4 punch when you have uh, Pete Alonso collecting three hits, three runs, two RBIs, and then the next batter, Michael Conforto, uh, collects four RBIs, two hits, and one run in four at-bats. Uh, you know, you can't say enough about about what they've finally paired Conforto with. And he's starting to have some protection in the lineup. Um, you know, I think I think Ramos. Obviously, he's been hot, but he he didn't have the best day today. But he did get an an, an RBI. Uh, so it it you know you're looking at the the lineup. Todd Frazier's a bit of a hole, even though he can have some big hits. Lagares, he's been coming on strong lately, but 0 for 3 today. Uh, and then finishing up with Altair and Nido. You know, it's I the and. When when Jeff McNeil is here and you're able to put Rosario a little lower, although we can obviously not to step on whatever your your agenda is, uh, we're going to talk about a lot, uh, uh, Rosario. Excuse me. You know, it'll it when Jeff McNeil is here, it really makes that lineup a lot longer. And you know, I think they may make the wild card this year, but this lineup is really coming to form. Coming coming into to, uh, a nice young core, and it's really been awesome to see, especially with Alonzo collecting all these home runs and hits. 
Definitely, definitely. You are listening to the Metzian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike and our very special guest, Newsday's Tim Healy tonight. So we've had a very positive conversation. And you can't talk about the Mets and be positive because you have to have some negative <laughs> stuff. I mean, they're the Mets, right? So, um, so now let's get to one of the negatives. Um, Edwin Diaz, he looked fantastic today. And, of course, the situation was a little bit different than, you know, than why, he's, why he's here. But Mickey said after the game that the slider was crisp. He was throwing it at 92 miles an hour. It had a good downward tilt. That's fantastic. Problem is, Edwin Diaz hasn't been doing that in games that he's supposed to do his thing. Uh, evidenced by the Brave game the other night when the Mets turned a laugher into a, a nail biter. And Diaz comes in and walks McCann on four pitches, then gets behind Inciarte before striking him out. So it's just it hasn't been there this year for Edwin Diaz. So the question is, if the Mets remain in contention, they will need a solid lockdown closer. The concern I have, please comment on this, the concern I have with having Lugo as your closer is it's pretty obvious he's not a day-to-day kind of a guy. And coming down the stretch, you might need your closer three days in a row, and Lugo can't do that. So – do you do a closer by committee where maybe Diaz is one of the people on the committee? Do you just say Familia's look very good? Do you say, okay, it's Lugo and Familia. We cannot trust Diaz. So, Tim, where are you with it, and where do you think the Mets are with the Edwin Diaz conundrum? The Mets are trying to fix him enough physically and mentally so that they can stop wondering about closer. Um you mentioned he obviously he got in there today, really good inning. Mickey said the slider was as good as he's seen it from Diaz all year. Um, and, man, baseball is a really psychological game. And if a really good inning and a blowout win uh, can help straighten out Edwin Diaz mentally and kind of give him that confidence in himself, um, then I think that could go a long way. And now we, we won't know if that helps until he – does it goes out there on Tuesday or Wednesday and does it again, and it's a, an actually late and close game, and he is in a safe situation. Um, but you never know when that turning point can be. As far as an ideal scenario for the Mets and the hypothetical run to and into the playoffs, uh, the best-case scenario for them is obviously Diaz snapping back into maybe not quite his 2018 form, but something close to it. Because the Diaz that we've seen for most of the last three months has been terrible, and the, the Mets are not going to get where they want to go if if he's still like that or if he's anything close to that. Um, so his turning around the season is critical to what the Mets do the next month and a half and beyond. Uh, and as far as the closer question of Lugo versus Diaz, to me the, the most optimal use of the Mets relievers is Diaz's closer, but again, only if he's good and deserves it. And Lugo in that floating relief ace multi-inning role, which Mickey Calloway knows is so valuable having had Andrew Miller in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, we we see that all over the game now, especially in October. Um, So so that's the best case scenario for the Mets. If Jerry Familia can figure himself out too, then, uh, you know, that that's pretty much a bonus or, you know what, I should, I should take that back. It's not a bonus. It's, it's way more critical than a bonus because even with a hypothetical two bid relievers, two lockdown relievers, that's not enough for the playoffs. It might not be enough to get to the playoffs. So um, 
that that's all my Diaz thoughts. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, that's kind of where things stand. And him turning around, turning things around, is going to be uh, a primary storyline really for the Mets the next few weeks. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, he is the best option when he's right, but he hasn't been right, and that's the thing, right? And, and like you were saying, right. can, can the inning today straighten him out? I certainly hope so, but you don't know. And and Mike, I'll go to you on this one at this point. There have there have been whispers, and I don't know if these whispers are valid or not, of sending Diaz down, and there's only, what, a week and a half or two weeks left of the minor league season at this point, of even sending him down to, you know, sort of get his head screwed on the right way. I, I think that's extreme personally. But what do you think about the Diaz conundrum, Mike? He has a live arm. That's what's so ponderous about this situation. Look at his strikeouts versus innings pitched. He's hittable. I'm not so sure how you fix that. And if I'm Mickey Calloway, I have to go by or with bullpen by committee. You put out the fire where and when they rise. Uh, you know, Diaz has to regain that ninth inning trust. So, uh, yeah, I think the closer has become an interchangeable role. And uh, you go with the hot hand. You can't lose uh, use Seth Lugo on back-to-back days. So, it's up to Mickey to massage this situation and, and do a pretty damn good job of it as well. Uh, but, you know, Diaz, uh, you know, what's he going to do? Go to Syracuse and strike out more batters? That's what, to me, is so so confounding about this situation, Rich. Yeah. I, I don't think sending him down does anything. But but I'll tell you what. Let, I'll go right back to you on this and Mike. If it were a one-run game going to the bottom of the ninth today in Kansas City, Lugo pitched last night. You've got Diaz out there. You've already used Familia, and they said Wilson was unavailable. What do you do? I, I don't know the answer. What would you do? Well, you're giving me a choice between Familia and, and Diaz. I mean, Diaz was here for a reason, and, and that opportunity needs to remain open, uh, and you need to still utilize him in that in, in that manner. Uh, but you do it reluctantly. Uh, again, he has to prove his way. He has to earn back trust. Not that he ever had it in the first place, but he has to earn that trust. So you you have no choice. You have to keep throwing him out there. Uh, but it's up to Mickey to throw him in less precarious situations. Uh, good luck with that. Yeah. So, Sam, uh, I'll give you that same hypothetical. So, Familia had pitched two innings, right? So let's just say it was a one-run game going to the bottom of the ninth. You would have Lugo, who you don't want to use on two days, two days consecutively, and you have Diaz out there. So, what would you have done today? Whew, uh, that's a tough one. It's just the home runs that are the most concerning. Like why he's giving up so many home runs. Obviously, you know his pitches are flat, uh, specifically the the breaking pitches, because uh, he seems to be in the second half having success with throwing fastball after fastball. It's just when he tries that slider, other than today, uh, it seems to get knocked out of the park. Uh, I think that you, Familia's really got his head screwed on right right now, and other than obviously a run today, he got the win. It's so funny to see, you know, and it just reminds you how ridiculous records are for pitchers that he's he's four and one this year with a six oh six twenty one ERA. Um, I think yeah, you'd have to probably go with. Uh, with Familia at this point, um, 
you know, and, and, and in April and May, Edwin Diaz was one of the most fun pitchers to watch on this team. He was just, he was electric. And you saw why they got him. Uh, and then it was just, it's just been all downhill. And again, I'll, I'll keep reiterating it. It's been like ridiculously downhill, especially since they, they tooled with him in that rain game. Um, where he was up and down and back and forth and then pitched in the pouring rain. I just thought it was ridiculous. And honorable mention to Brad Brack, who it seems that all he needed this year was to start pitching for his favorite team. Uh, he has been locked out since since he uh, got here, and I just want to give an honorable mention to him because he's really, you know, uh, Avalon coming back, Justin Wilson coming back, and now that they signed Brad Brack, Things are looking better. We just got to get that home run ball under control of Diaz. Yeah. Well, I I go back to what Tim said. I mean, to me, it's like it. If you don't have Diaz doing what he's supposed to be doing, I don't think you have a snowball's chance in hell going down down the last six weeks. I really don't. Um, they're really short in the pen without without Diaz because you can't use Lugo every day. Familia, as much as I want to say he's back, oof. You know, he's a crapshoot, so they're, they're going to need an effective Edwin Diaz. So what I thought we could do here is maybe get an update from Tim, who's closest to the team, on something that I know is on my mind, I'm sure on a lot of fans' minds, which would be the injury situation. So, Tim, if you could, if you know anything about the injuries to McNeil, I know that he was out there doing some light activity. Um, sure. is, is the buzz that it might be 10 days and back or, or that it might be longer than that, um, and what about J.D. Davis? You know, when Mickey said today, and I know he has to say certain things, right, but when he said today that he looked fine running and all that, oh, my God. I mean, the guy was wincing in pain the entire way from first to third. So right. what do you see, right? What do you see with McNeil's injury? Do you see a, maybe, a move maybe to the I.L. for Davis? What, what's the swirl at this point? With McNeil, it sounds like if it's not 10 days, it might be just a little bit more than that, kind of like it was last time when he missed 11 or 12 days. This weekend in Kansas City, McNeil was out on the field pregame every day doing light agility stuff, playing catch. So he's not completely shut down by any means. He's still doing some baseball activities. Um, So that continues to progress without issue. Um, Now there's a lot he has to do between now and when he's eligible, I think not next weekend it would be sometime uh, when he hits the 10 days mark. There's plenty of stuff he has to do between now and then, so um, I'm sure that there will be daily or, or near-daily updates on Jeff McNeil, as, uh, and if he's continuing to progress, that's the way they expect. Uh, Davis, to me, is a little bit of a conundrum right now. Right. He, he came out of a game Friday with the, the tight right cap, and they said it was no big deal. He really insisted that it was a big deal. Um, and then he didn't. Wasn't in the lineup Saturday. Wasn't in the lineup Sunday. Um, so <laughs> Mickey says he wants to be cautious in holding him out, but also was not confident in the way Davis ran from first to third today. Those those tell me two different things. Either it's not an issue, or it is an issue. You know, and I don't know which one it is. I think uh, uh, a move to the IL, while the Mets have given off no hint of that, um, it wouldn't surprise me if that's something that happened Tuesday. Um, because uh, just the way the way it's uh, they've handled it so far, very safely, very cautiously. Um, Mickey was talking today about the decision to, you know, you want to play guys every day because every game matters versus trying to protect them and keep them healthy. 
Um, it's pretty late in the season, so it's the time of year when everybody has something, as they say. It's almost a cliche, but it's also true. Um, so, that, frankly, with McNeil, too, the time down will probably do the rest of his body some good besides the hamstring. With Davis, the hope is the off day will be plenty. He expects to be back in left field on, on Tuesday against the Indians. Um, I'm not totally convinced that'll be the case, but that's just a, a feeling thing. I think I have the same feeling. Um, so, Sam, we'll go to you next on this one. Do you think the Mets are going to um, do something they're known for doing, which is playing shorthanded and, uh, you know, and keeping Davis around, not ielling him and not having a fully healthy Davis the rest of the way? Or, or would you rather see them say, look, Keith Hernandez always says it on the broadcast, Cavs are tough. They're very tough injuries. Would you rather see them DL him for 10 days and around Labor Day say, okay, J.D., you're back, you know, and hopefully he's healthy. What would you rather see them do? Uh, the latter, for sure. Um, what do I think they're going to do? What they usually do. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the Wilfons are, are talked down about the way they handle injuries, and they're always rehabbing in St. Lucie and, you know, this and that and the other. Um uh, you know, we have stayed positive for the majority of this podcast, but anytime you start talking about injuries with this team, the negative comes comes a, a barking. So uh, that cap's going to keep barking. <laughs> you know, put him on the DL and just nip this in the butt. I, I think I'm aligned with that. Mike, are the Mets going to handle this in Mets fashion and trot him out there once every three days so he never gets healthy the rest of the way, or do you see them maybe ielling him? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to leave the emotional answer aside. I'll try to be pragmatic about this one. This is why I had no real answer for you when it came to out there, Billy Hamilton, because of McNeil's injury, because of Davis's injury. Puts the Mets in a little bit of a quandary there. To that, I'll say, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. So perhaps Billy Hamilton is in our near future after all. That might be the case, and obviously he's a significant downgrade from J.D. Davis offensively. It might be a bit of an upgrade defensively, but you know what? I'd rather have a healthy Billy Hamilton than a J.D. Davis who could swing the bat once every three days and you have to pinch run for him. I, I just, you know, I've never been aligned with that thinking. So we'll see. Tuesday, uh, a lot of off days. Mets haven't had a game on a Monday since June, and uh, they don't have one for the rest of August, which I find kind of odd. Um, all right, so once again, you're listening to the Metzian Podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, and our very special guest, Tim Healy of Newsday. We have reached the end of our time together. Um, Tim, if we can have you for two more minutes, um, if, sure. if that's okay. Thank totally. you. One of the things we do is we like to uh, associate or talk of a minute or two about a certain player who wore the number that corresponds with the episode. So in this case, it's our 34th episode. And, uh, you know, any any thoughts you might have about any one of these guys, um, and if you have none, that's fine, too. I'll go to Mike first on this one, then Sam, then we'll go back around to Tim. So in terms of the Mets who have worn number 34, a couple of the names, uh, Mike, that, that will pop out to you. I, I never knew Cleon Jones wore 34, uh, but apparently he did for one season. Bob Apodaca who uh, was the Mets pitching coach, in addition to being a pitcher for them, Junior Ortiz, outstanding defensive catcher. Uh, who else do we have here? And, of course, we have Mike Pelfrey and then Mr. Syndergaard, who currently dons number 34. So, Mike, in looking at the Mets who have worn number 34, and let's not forget Chris Benson, um, who pops out to you? 
I'll, I'll make mention of Cleon Jones, even though he only wore the number in 1965. Uh, but I, I'm following the 50th anniversary of the, of the 69 Mets, and, and tomorrow on the 19th, he goes three for five to bring his average back up to 350 on the season. Uh, just wanted to mention that. And uh, Ed Lynch is probably one of the more underrated pitchers in Mets history. And Bob Apodak was a very likable receiver during uh, those mid-70s years. I'll leave the rest up to you guys. Sam, we'll go to you next. Or, uh, do you want to go current day or do you want to go historical? Who, who's the number 34 that might pop out to you? Well, looking at this, it's interesting. Nolan Ryan also wore it one year. Um, I, I'm very curious about Max Suzuki because there's no recollection on the website when you click his name <laughs> regarding this, this guy. <laughs> so I'd love to do some in, investigation to who Mac, Max Suzuki is, um, who only wore it for uh, a few days on from the 18th to the 22nd of June in 1999. Um Mike Palfrey, one of my least favorite Mets of all time. Uh, you know, the big the big infamy with Mike Palfrey is the fact that he kept licking his hands, and uh, uh, which also, oh, God, what's his name? Al of the morning show uh, sang um, in, in the Beatles tune of I Want to Hold Your Hand, I Want to Lick My Hands. We can't sing anymore, otherwise we might have some copyright infringement. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, you know, we're still waiting for him to, to really – throw the hammer down, if you will, but I think that the, the hatred he takes is a little unwarranted. It, it's very much born out of the Twitterverse. Uh, I think Noah is still one of the horses of this team, and I really appreciate that he's taken, he's kind of had some self-reflection with the way he was pitching earlier this year, and has really come on strong uh, of late. And, um, yeah, I mean, the rest of them are, are some of those classic Met random Met names. Uh, I know maybe you guys have some words on Junior Ortiz, who uh, came, who wore it uh, six fifteen eighty three to nine twenty two eighty four. Um, but then like you know random names like Frank Seminara, uh, Rick Trilek, of course Bob Apodaca, which is definitely one of the best Mets baseball names of all time. Um, but yeah, I'll, that that'll be it for me. Oh, yeah, and an honorable name to uh, Anna Benson's husband. There you go. All right, Tim, do anything. <laughs> Maybe you've covered them. Maybe you haven't. Any any comment, anybody who's ever worn 34? The only one of these I've covered is Noah Syndergaard, who's been, uh, you guys mentioned it. One Rich mentioned, but Rich didn't mention, but Sam did. Nolan Ryan, I was surprised to see on this list. I think – Nolan Ryan as a Met, and I say this as somebody who grew up not following the Mets. I wasn't born into this, but no, the fact that Nolan Ryan was a Met for the first few years of his career is just an all-time footnote to baseball history for me. Um, the trade is what it is, and obviously it's one uh, Mets fans, even ones who weren't alive then, have greatly come to significantly regret. Um, but the fact that he, you know, was a Met, wore 34 for a time, and Frankly, I like that Noah has Nolan Ryan's old jersey number. I think uh, that's been a comparison people have heard here and there. Obviously, it hasn't worked out as far as pure on-field results go, as much talent as Noah Syndergaard has. Um, we'll see what happens in the years to come. But uh, that Nolan Ryan wore number 34 and that Noah Syndergaard wore number 34 for the Mets, to me, that, that's what stuck out. 
You know, it stuck out to me, too. I didn't even notice it when I was scanning down the list. Um, I think of Nolan Ryan as 30 with the Mets, and, and there it is in black and white. He did wear 34 briefly. All right, so we've reached the end of the line, and um, and we do a last word. I'm going to do a tweak on the last word this time around. I'm going to give you a structured last word. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to tell me, will the New York Mets be in the postseason, and I count the wild card game as the postseason, Will the New York Mets be in the postseason, yes or no, and give me maybe one or two sentences as to why you feel that way? Sam, let's start with you. Mets in the postseason, yes or no, and why do you feel that way? Yes. I just feel that I, – I, I feel like they're, they're going to ride this thing out. I just don't yet have faith that they're going to get over the Mickey Calloway hump in terms of the actual playoffs. I feel like he'll, he will be exposed, um, and maybe it'll be kind of a, a Buck Showalter situation where uh, they need to bring in uh, a bit more inspiring of a fellow afterwards. Although, I, you know, I don't like to hate on Buck Showalter because he's had such success, uh, even if, you know, he, he was ousted after the, the, the uh, playoffs in 1995. Um and I think he's definitely a better manager than Mickey Calloway currently is. But um, I could see that being kind of the comparisons, especially with, with Mickey not being Brody's guy, if they were to make the playoffs. Mike, yes or no and why? I'd love to say yes, but the answer is no. You know, I'd love to say yes because at this point in 1969, the Mets were only eight games back of the Cubs. They were in a similar situation division-wise and the wild card is there for the taking. But I have to revert to what I said early in the show. Their record against Atlanta and Philadelphia is not good, and they have to prove otherwise. Milwaukee, just by themselves, whatever it is they do, you know, I, I, I fear that. Otherwise, six games against Philadelphia, six games against Atlanta, if they don't seize the moment, the answer is flat out no. I don't think they, they'll pull it off. Before we ask our special guest, I'd like to thank him once again. Folks, if you haven't read Tim Healy in News Today, you're doing yourself a disservice, please do. Follow him on Twitter for up-to-date Mets news and analysis. Tim, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Happy to. And, Tim, take us home. Mets in the postseason, yes or no and why? I'm going to go with no because they haven't proven to me that they are a good team yet. Uh, I, all I can do is go off what I've seen so far and what I see in front of me and what the numbers say, and uh, I just don't think they're a good enough team as things stand now. That said, as I said, early, as I said earlier, uh, they are still in prove-it mode, and I'm willing to be surprised and very curious and excited to see how it starts out. How about that? Well, thank you for that, and I'm going to say no as well. So, with Sam, you're out number three to one. I'm going to say no, and the reason I'll say no is I, I don't like the construction of the roster. I, I, think they, I think right now they're playing with essentially 21 or 20 major league players. They don't have the depth to, to pull from. We talked about that. I, I just don't think you're going to make the postseason when, even if you have 23 major league players on the roster, you're, you're going to get exposed. Home games, yes, that's a big positive in their favor, but I just don't see it. So, everyone, thank you for listening to the 34th episode of the Metsian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike and our very special guest, Tim Healy of Newsday. 
And with that, I'd like to wish you all a good night, and thank you for listening. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Let's go. Thanks, Tim. You got it. Happy to. Have a good night.